0: All right, happy new year, everybody. This is a new series, new year, new faces. Some of you, this is your first time here, and it's an honor to have you. Thank you for being here. Um, We say Oikos is home a lot at Oikos. I was standing outside. Shelby will love this. Are you up here, Shelby? All right, downstairs. A lady walked by. She was pushing a man in a wheelchair. She says, is this a Greek church? She sees me coming in. I was like, no. She says, because I know oikos is Greek yogurt, so I assumed that this is. I was like, no, oikos is actually a biblical word that means home or family. You know, I say the thing. Oikos is a weird word. and So saying oikos is home, we're actually saying something about what oikos is, yes, but also about something that we're looking for. I'm looking for home. I'm looking for belonging. I'm looking for a family. I'm, the life we're looking for in a word is this word oikos, the life we're looking for. Let me, let me ask this question as we get started. What is the life that you're looking for? Just act like that didn't happen. What is the life that you're looking for? There's a couple of ways that we can answer this. This is a new year. If you're like me, you may do like resolutions You may look back at a year and you look forward to a year and you may set some goals. You have a vision for where you want to be. And then not only do you have these big dreams, but you have the daydreams, the things that actually occupy you day to day to day. Any ideas, Mark? Okay. Nope. Uh, If it does it again, can you grab me a mic? Is that okay? Let's do that. Um, the question of the life we're looking for, that's the question of like the Hebrew prophets. They call it shalom. It's, it's peace. They call it blessing. If you're into philosophy, if you've taken a, a philosophy course over at U of M, you may have heard of Aristotle. In his book on ethics, he called it eudaimonia. He called it happiness. In our American constitution, we call it the pursuit of happiness there's this question of what are we looking for and every every civilization every person ends up answering this at the big level but then on a personal level we all start answering what is the life I'm looking for but if you look at our daydreams and the ways that we get distracted very often the ways that we spend our days don't actually lead to the thing we're looking for and then sometimes even when we're highly intentional about how we spend our days, it undermines the very thing we're looking for because we don't know any better. That's a lot of what I want to look at in this series that we call Oikos' home. This is part one, a house on the rock. If Oikos is a biblical word that means home or a house or a family or a household, what would it look like to have a secure house, a home that was settled and strong, a home that that couldn't be shaken by the storms of life. That's the answer that Jesus gives us. Everyone's asking the question from shalom or happiness or eudaimonia or blessing. And Jesus gives the definitive answer, I believe. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm up here. Of course, I believe that. But I think you're also believing that because you're here on a Sunday to worship him. But Jesus specifically answers this question of what is the life we're looking for. And I think we should listen. Jonathan Pennington, he wrote a a book on the the Sermon on the Mount. He says the sermon is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced How can we experience true human flourishing? Jesus answers that question, and he answers it in a way that most of us don't. So the sermon becomes the epicenter, the forefront of of Jesus' answer. And today we're going to dive into the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. Like I said, if you have a coffee house Bible, it's going to be on page 832. If you have any other Bible, it's on page Matthew chapter 7, whatever, you know, whatever you have. And it's really structured in three parts, this, this conclusion. The first part I've called the few and the many, or the many versus the few. And it comes from verses 13 and 14. Let's look at this. This is how he, he concludes his, his big magnum opus, his sermon on the mount. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. Jesus loves to talk about entering into a people or a kingdom. He says you have to enter into the kingdom of heaven if you want to experience the good life. This is how he's talking about the life we're looking for. Jesus' way of saying that in an ancient Jewish kind of context is to say you have to enter into the kingdom of heaven. How do you get in? He says there's a very narrow gate. It's narrow. Most people, he says, won't find it. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is giving us the answer to the life we're looking for. And he says the first thing you need to know about the life we're looking for is that only few find it. Most people will not find the life we're looking for. Now, let's keep in mind, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to Jewish people who, they all have Bibles, you know, at least memorized in their heads. They go to synagogue, they worship God, they read the scriptures, and he says, most of you will not find life. These are religious people, you know, socially conservative. These are, these are God-fearing people. These are Jewish people that he's speaking to in Judea and Galilee in the first century. And he says, most of you will not find it. You need to know that on the front end. It's a very narrow gate. There's a, a many versus a few. Um, you see this in Jesus' ministry in a lot of ways. Um, he, has, he has kind of three spheres of people. He has this inner kind of 12. He has a large group of disciples. And then he has what are called the crowds, The crowds are people who like Jesus. They want to be around Jesus. They love this guy. They can't get enough of this guy. They want everything that he gives them. Sometimes he hands out healings. Let's go. Sometimes he hands out food, free food. They want the things from Jesus, but they're not committed to the discipleship to Jesus. They aren't ready to leave everything and follow him. And so there's this crowds versus the disciples. And I think in the American church, we have this new introduction of what we call Christian, right? Most of us use the word Christian to describe ourselves. In in the New Testament, the Christian Christian is only used two to three times. And it's mostly to distinguish between Christian and a a Jewish person. But in, in the New Testament, the most common way of talking about a follower of Jesus is a disciple. 269 times in the new testament a disciple is used to describe the people of jesus that's a lot a disciple but we have this new introduction aw tozer he, he comments on this he says there's this notable heresy that came in in the 20th century that we humans can choose to accept christ because we need him as savior And that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. He says the heresy is salvation apart from obedience. There are Christians who haven't ever decided to follow Jesus. There are Christians who haven't followed Jesus. Dallas Willard, he's a late professor at, uh, a professor of philosophy, just devout man of God. He says there's this myth that we can be Christians forever without ever becoming disciples. He calls them vampire Christians. They're only after his blood. You know, they don't actually want to follow him. They just want the benefits of him. He says the New Testament, though, is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. He calls it the great omission. You've heard of the great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. But he says this great omission is that most people today never actually become disciples. It's been omitted from the great commission. The great omission is that obedient, not obedience, but discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus? The greatest issue facing the world today, he says, with all its heartbreaking issues, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Do you see what he's saying? He says, the big question, the question that's actually going to solve the world's problems is whether or not Christians will become disciples. Only a few will find it. Most, most people, even the people who like Jesus, who worship God, who know the scriptures, most of those people will not follow and find the life that we're looking for. But he says it's not only many versus few, but he says it's, it's actually hard versus easy. It says it's broad, it's easy it's easy to find, but then it's also easy to walk and to navigate if you just default to the culture of the world. It's easy to settle in to, to a life that has, includes Jesus on top of everything else that is just the good life that you think. But when you let Jesus define the good life, he says it's hard. That's another reason why most of us won't actually accept the challenge. And so it requires these deep roots and letting our hearts be seen by Jesus and then letting our identities be named by Jesus. Second, second part of this conclusion starts in verse 15. The first one was about the many versus the few, the easy versus the hard, but now he, he draws this new tension between the outward and the inward. Look at what he says. He says, watch out for false prophets. Now, false prophet sounds kind of scary, right? It sounds like somebody... Who has a lot of power and a lot of say, and my God, we have seen some false prophets in the American church, haven't we? Because of the lives that they live or the teaching that they share, they lead people away from this narrow, good life that we're actually looking for, and they lead other people with them. There are false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. You see the distinction here between outward and inward? On the outside, they look like something, and on the inside, there's something different. By their fruit, you will recognize them. He's swapping metaphors, right? He says, you have to look at their offspring. If they're a sheep or a wolf, you know it by their children. You know it by their disciples. You know it by their fruit. Then he adds on to this metaphor with another one of fruit. He says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I don't actually know where people pick grapes and figs, you know, personally. I've never picked those things. Apparently not, though. So he says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. He says if it's corrupt on the inside, it's going to have corrupt fruit. If it's good on the inside, it's going to have good fruit. A a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. He says you, you need to look not only at the outside of something, you have to look at the inside of something. You can't just look at the clothing that the thing shows up in. You have to look at the heart of a thing. You have to look at the root system, at the, at the health of the tree itself. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit, you will, he's just said that. He says it in two ways. But Jesus seems to clarify in a really important way the nature of this outward versus inward. Look at this, look at what he says next. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does. Do you see the tension between the one who says and the one who does? The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. He's still talking about false prophets, and look what he says. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Right? He's talking about false prophets, and here they are prophesying. Didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, literally you lawless people. What's going on here? John Ortberg in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, he calls these boundary markers. Boundary markers for religious people are the highly visible outward kind of the things you see on the on the outside. And the boundary markers seem to be really important to religious people. Maybe you grew up in a, a church context where there was a few boundary markers like modesty and what you wore. Did you ever have to put on a new set of clothes or a different set of clothes to show up to church than you did like school? Yes. Some of us are, are nodding our heads. That's that's a very outward sign. And it doesn't actually reveal much about the inside of somebody. Sometimes in in religious context, it's about the food you eat or or don't eat. Um, So in a lot of church contexts, if you ever smoked or drank, you know, that was a very visible kind of public way of saying that you're not actually with us. Um, In Jewish culture, it was kosher laws and food laws, Right. So there's these outward things that seem to be really important. Highly visible, relatively superficial practices. Sometimes they're matters of vocabulary, he says, or dress or style, whose purpose is to distinguish inside from those outside. So visible things like worship style and dress code and titles and positions, these actually become really important in these these circles of boundary markers. But Jesus is saying you have to ignore the thing on the outside because what I'm actually concerned about is the thing on the inside. He talks about this on two different levels, though, because the point of a boundary marker is to show you're different, but what's striking about these false prophets is that they're actually doing amazing things. So the hypocrisy that you and I mostly think of is somebody who says something and does something different. These people are doing amazing things. They're prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they're performing miracles in the name of Jesus, right? He says all of that but he says there's something going on on the heart level that isn't right. So the external fruit of success and experience and power doesn't actually show that a heart has been recaptured by Jesus and that he has renewed their identity in any meaningful way. At Oikos Church, our mission is to see people deeply transformed by God's grace. Deeply transformed means it's not about the show. Sorry, Candice, you're... It, you were great. But it, it's not about who's up here and how good it sounds. It's about what's going on in here and God taking hold of our hearts and renewing our identities. It's not about power. It's not about miracles. It's, it's not about prophecy. It's not about casting out demons. As awesome as those things would be to see here in this place. He says, no, I want your heart. Dude, it's, it's a crazy tension between the outward and, and the inward. Jesus, he says, the good life isn't a life of external fruit. It's a life of internal fruit. The apostle Paul calls it the fruit of the spirit. he says, the fruit of the spirit in in a word is love. First Corinthians 13, This same apostle Paul, he says, if you have the faith that can move mountains and, and do miraculous things, but if you're missing love, he says, what's the point? It's not about all of that stuff. And This is really important because as Oiko seeks to be home, that is not our, our aim. Our aim is not on the external, peripheral things, the showy stuff. It is on deeply transformed lives where our identities are seen and renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. So there's an outward and an inward tension to go along with the many and the few. This is actually the whole Sermon on the Mount, though. It's, he's like, that's fine if you don't want to murder but what I really want is your heart not to get angry. Sex, you're, you want to avoid adultery, that's good, yeah, but what I really want is a heart that doesn't lust after men and women. He says, you're, it's good that you're giving to the poor, but some of you are giving and greedy still at the same time. He says, it's good to pray, but when you pray publicly, you have everything that you ask for. You want it to be seen, you got it. Over and over, Jesus draws our attention, not just to the external things that we do, but to the internal heart of the matter. Now, that is what people, what generation am I? I'm looking out, I'm like right in the middle, I think. So I, I, li- I grew up in cultures and church that needed to hear that message of like the, out, the outward stuff is fine, but the inward stuff is what God's really after. But what I have sensed, and what I'm hearing from others, particularly those working with college age and younger, is that it's almost the opposite thing that needs to be said. That you actually, your good intentions in your heart are good, but you need some fruit to show for what you're doing with your life, and the life of discipleship to Jesus. The fruit isn't, again, the showy stuff on the outside. The fruit is the things of substance that are grown over time through discipleship to Jesus. Outward, yes. Inward, far more important. But when you get the inward, Jesus says that it it bears fruit. The good tree bears good fruit. So we want to be a church here where we're drawing the many into this life of discipleship. And through a life of discipleship, we have fruit of transformed lives to show for it. Third piece of this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount is, is here in 24 through 27. It's the tension between hearing between hearing and doing. So this is, this is the good life. Let's see what he says. Therefore, final words of the sermon. Not mine, Jesus's. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus says, ultimately, it comes down to this. You can do stuff for the law, you can do stuff for God. But what I want is you to put my teachings into practice. You can do stuff. You know, I've, I've got a, a brother who's he's really into Stoicism right now. It's great. I love reading the Stoics. I've got, you know, people who are really into, like, self-help stuff. That's great. You know, you can improve your life in some ways. You can get organized. You can set some goals. You can go to school. You can get a degree. You can do a lot of things. But Jesus says that ultimately, those things will not give you the life you're looking for. Jesus says you have to listen to my words and put them into practice. There's this gap of discipleship that we've already talked about. But I think it bears repeating that Jesus says the only way to actually experience the good life that he promises is through. Practice is through doing. This this word here puts them into practice. That word practice is the word bear fruit. It is the word do. It, it's translated in so many different ways. In just our section, he uses this word eight times. In the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the word twenty-two times. Jesus is concerned about what you do. He says you got to put it into practice. Practice though is a really good word because it's not perfection. You don't have to put it into perfection. Jesus absolutely is the embodiment, the, the king, the wise one who shows what the Sermon on the Mount looks like in a life. And we imperfectly are trying to practice the way of Jesus. But practice means that you're formed over time. Um, okay, let, let me k- keep moving for the sake of time. He says, if you put them into practice, then you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Do you know that Greek word, house? Shout it out if you know it. Oikos, yeah, that's it. So if you want to build your oikos, he says there's only one way to actually get it on a firm foundation. It's Jesus. On the other hand, he says when the rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. On the rock. But on the other hand, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds beat and blew against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You know the song, right? You've been singing it since you were like four years old. The wise man built his house on the rock. But that is a, just a profoundly important passage in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's saying that the measure of your security, the, from an identity perspective, from your family perspective, the measure of sh- your security is measured by the foundation that you put your life on. He says, when you put your life on anything but the rock, it turns out to be sand. And what happens at the end of the song? It all goes splat. Now, he's talking about the storms of life, right? When things get hard, He says, this is durable. It'll see you through. And that's true. But he also has this judgment kind of final scene in the background. Do you hear that that language of like the winds and the storm? And it's a lot of imagery taken directly from the prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremiah talks like this. Ezekiel talks like this. I mean, even in Genesis, you see the great flood of waters where God's judgment comes on the earth. This is a, a prophetic way of saying that God is coming back. And at some point, we're going to answer, Lord, Lord. And he says, what, what's going to be there? There, there is a, the life we're looking for in this life. But ultimately, there's a life we're looking for now and forever. And he says, there's only one foundation that can see you through. It's the foundation of the rock that is Jesus. This has a radical Jesus-centered nature to it. That's really controversial in a pluralistic culture like ours, where kind of you have your way, you do you. Jesus says, there's only one answer and it's me. And that's going to turn a lot of people off, which is part of why there are only few who find it. Jesus doesn't say, Jonathan Pennington writes, that the wise and foolish are distinguished according to how they obey God or practice Torah or follow the teachings of the elders. Rather, they are distinguished on the basis of how they respond to his words. He is the true and final source of revelation itself. He is the path of human flourishing. So true discipleship according to Jesus, means putting into practice the way of Jesus. So what does that mean? What does that look like for us? Let me skip ahead. Let's start with a soil test. Um, Now, Don and Denise probably just did some soil testing at a new construction site. And if you have any any experience in soil tests, it's kind of this tedious thing that you do before you do a couple of things. Before you start building on top of something, you have to test the soil to see how strong it is compact it is but also before you build any septic tanks you got to do the same thing Do you know what's in a septic tank it's like all the waste that's running off he says it it needs to be able to get rid of the let's call it junk so if if you want to get rid of the junk that's in you and you want to build on something secure he says you got to do a soil test before that's kind of code enforcement what would that look like for people who are thinking of building their house on rock or their house on sand but Jesus says the, the measure of rock is, is me. And so here's two, two questions just to kind of explore just for a moment. Your daydreams and your big dreams. Your daydreams are the things that occupy kind of your day-to-day Basically, like when you end a day and you look back and Siri says, well, you spent like three hours on your phone this week, you know, like th- that kind of daydream. Like where does your mind get wrapped up in and get distracted by? You know, where are your go-tos that just fill your day today, your daydreams? Some of this is just work, it's school, it's, it's stuff. Big dreams, I mean, it Most of you don't have a vision board, but do you know what I mean by vision board? Like where you're putting your goals for the year. These are your new year's resolutions. This year, this is what I'm aiming at, your big dreams. This is who I want to be and become. Just want to offer you an invitation to explore how Jesus-centered your daydreams are and your big dreams are. There's a lot of stuff that you can fill your life with, and there's a lot of ways to build. But when you do the soil test, is that worth building on? Is Jesus part of it? Is it going to endure the winds and storms and the waters that are coming in this life and at the great day? With that in mind, I want to invite you also to make one of your big dreams this year to be personal discipleship to Jesus. To practice the way of Jesus. To develop a rhythm of life. That's our language here at Oikos Church. A rhythm of life. And we have a rhythm of life that we'd love to introduce you to in Welcome Home, which starts in a couple of weeks, if we can get a group to make. Welcome Home is where we introduce our our rhythm of life together, what discipleship looks like, about personal practice. But most of you I'm looking at in the room have already been through Welcome Home. You've been introduced. And I think this moment at the beginning of a new year is a great time to reassess and to set some goals for discipleship to Jesus in 2023. There's a personal way of building a rhythm of life that seeks the Lord, that seeks scripture, that seeks prayer and community and service, that seeks hospitality, to seek the way of Jesus by doing the things that Jesus did. All right, second piece of this. And this is really, really what I want to say this morning. Um, Oikos is a biblical word that means home, and we're trying to build a house, and we want to build a house that is secured not only to last another year, Lord willing, but that provides this inner transformation to put the way of Jesus into practice as a a people, which means that our goals aren't more stuff and more flash and more showy. Our goals are deeper discipleship to Jesus and a wider front door to invite people in, That's what we want to do this year. In 2023, we want to widen our front doors so that more people can come in and then deepen our discipleship, our practice of the way of Jesus together. And I'm really excited about it. I'm so excited about some of the things that are just already on the calendar that we're, we kind of have, we've figured out some of what we want to do. And then there's other things that we we don't even know yet what we want to do, but we know we want to follow Jesus together. We want to help each other follow Jesus and be transformed in deep ways. Here's a Just a few previews of what that's going to look like. Next month, we're going to do a series on fasting. And as part of the Lent season, we're going to invite our entire church family to practice a fast together. Every person's going to have their own kind of version of that, but all of us together fasting to seek the Lord in new ways. We're going to have a series later on in the year on prayer. And we're going to have some special guests come in and just kind of teach us how to pray. We want to grow our culture of prayer, this church and our culture of prayer in our homes. And this year, we want to help you do that. This year, in in March, we want to introduce what we call DNA groups. And the college students have already been introduced to these. But DNA stands for Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. And we we want to put you in in spheres where where your discipleship gets deeper and it's mutual with other people. This year, our, our preaching is going to focus on the way of Jesus. Most everything that I say is going to be drawn from the Gospel of Matthew. And it's going it's to hit in a lot of different kinds of series. But we're going to be looking at discipleship to Jesus in everything that we're doing as a church. Because a house has to be built on the rock if it's actually going to stand. The fruit that we're looking for is the fruit of deeply transformed lives. Who look like Jesus. Who are being transformed from in one glory to another glory by the Spirit of God. I'm, I'm really excited about this year. About walking in discipleship together. But let me say this. This is a a very important note to end on. That oikos is not the home you're looking for. We, me, are flawed. And selfish and broken. And prideful. And in many ways, me and we are those false prophets that Jesus is calling out, where the inside doesn't match everything on the outside. Um, in the last couple of months, some of the, just the greatest people here have let me in on hard stuff that's going on in their life. It's not because they weren't part of Oikos that it was hard and that they feel really kind of spent. In some ways, it's because they were part of Oikos that they felt like that. Like they were pouring out so much. Because church life can be really consuming for some people. And so it's important to remind you and to remind all of us that Oikos is not the home that you're looking for. That you can come to everything that we put on the calendar. But if you're not seeking the Lord in a personal discipleship to Jesus it's not going to give you what you want. It's not going to have the profound impact. And even if you are doing that, here's the other thing that I've got to say. The hard doesn't go away. He says, enter through the narrow gate. He says, but that narrow gate is difficult. It's hard. And so over and over, those, those mature people who kept coming and they were saying, like, this is hard. Over and over, I also kept hearing And I see the Lord at work in it. He is strengthening me or he's moving me. He's transforming me in the heart. And I think that's ultimately really the difference between that, that Christian and that disciple. It's not the difference of heart. Life is hard. The storms come. But through discipleship, and particularly discipleship in community, we can be strengthened by the Spirit of God to be able to endure and to have some fruit to show for it. My heart's desire for Oikos Church is to be a people that are founded on discipleship to Jesus. And through that discipleship to Jesus, through that, we bear fruit, fruit of transformed lives. May it be so in 2023. Can I pray for us? And then if you've got children downstairs, I'm sure they'll be anxious to see you. Lord, we surrender our lives to you. You are our holy and righteous and good God. You are the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we submit our lives to him as king. As we seek him and practice his ways and do what he did, would you transform us into his image? Would you change our hearts? Not just the the stuff on the outside that everybody sees. Would you change our hearts? Would you change my heart, dear Lord? By your mercy, by your grace, would you gently move me into greater obedience and greater faith? And this year, as, as we offer, it's, it seems so silly, as we offer series and, and events and, and programs, Lord, would you make those into something more than that? Would you make them into spiritually transforming moments where we are drawn deeper into life with you? We surrender, we submit, and Lord, we ask that you would make us fruitful. Would you bear fruit, beginning with us, would you bear fruit in the city this year? That as we deepen our discipleship, that you could widen our doors and bring new faces who are looking for the gate of life, who are looking for something more in this life. Lord, would you give them a taste of it here, that they could find you and your son Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.